Frequency is for open-minded thinkers, for observers who are hopelessly curious, for experiencers of the mysterious, and for those who are passionate about perceiving the unknown. I will be sharing with you all my own exceptional experiences and other extraordinary constructs that exist in our reality. Welcome to Access Elysium. What's up and welcome to all of you beautiful souls out there. I am your host, Amber O'Dell, and this is the Access Elysium podcast. So have you ever wondered where people have gathered to communicate with the star people for thousands of years? Well, look no further. That place is called Giant Rock. So coming up today on the show, we're going to dive into Native American history with Giant Rock, Giant Rock's connections to Frank Kritzer and George Van Tassel, and my own personal and life-changing experience with Giant Rock. So what the fuck is Giant Rock? Well, Giant Rock is the largest freestanding boulder in North America, and it is purported to be the largest freestanding boulder in the world. It is located in California's Mojave Desert, and it is roughly seven stories high and covers almost 6,000 square feet. It is a big freaking rock. It's Huge. This seven-story giant boulder has attracted UFO conferences, Hopi spiritualists, and engineers of a rejuvenation machine. The rock has been a Native American spiritual site for thousands of years. Native Americans of the Joshua Tree area considered it to be sacred long before Van Tassel or Kritzer, Kreitzer, I don't know what the fuck guy's name, <laughs> we're just going to call him Frank. Uh, but before these two guys came along, Giant Rock was a spiritual site for tribes and ceremonies and prophecy. Hopi shamans have suspected since the 19th 20s that the future of the 21st century would be foretold by the giant rock based on how the rock would crack. So they predicted that this rock would tell our future in the 1920s. So in February 2000, a giant chunk of the rock did indeed break off. Spiritual leader Sridhnath Devi interpreted the break in a positive light, saying the mother had opened her arms to us, cracking open her heart for the whole world to see. It is speculated the break was the result of fires burned under the giant rock in what was once Frank's underground home, but that is just a theory for those who do not particularly believe. So I found... Let's see. On the Mojave Project, I think that's how they say it, dot org, they talk about the giant rock and space people and the Integratron, which oh, it gets so exciting. So much cool stuff in one spot. So on the morning of February 21st, 2000 at 820 a.m., an extraordinary event occurred. In Outline Landers, California, an immense boulder that's made of quartz monzonite formed some 65 to 130 million years ago. This is a super old 
boulder, older boulder. <laughs> a considerable section of the boulder came crashing down, revealing a gleaming white granite core. This structure named Giant Rock towers some seven stories high and it's 25,000 tons or more. It is like, can, okay, imagine a building that has seven stories in it. That's how tall this rock is. So years before Giant Rock mysteriously split, this monolithic sized rock achieved a widespread notoriety. According to internet accounts, the ancestral Serrano, oh my gosh, and here we go, Chemahuvi people conducted spiritual ceremonies at Giant Rock, during which only the chief was allowed to touch or be near it because it was so sacred. New Agers have described Giant Rock's location as a spiritual vortex where the Earth's ley lines intersect, thus channeling mystical and psychic energy. Perhaps there is some validity to this because... Just located 20 miles north of Joshua Tree in the National Park is the epicenter of a severely destructive 7.3 magnitude earthquake on June 28, 1992. There is so much stuff happening all around Giant Rock. Like, all these things are centered around this one rock and its mystical energy. On February 19th and 20th, uh, Srinath Devi, founder of South Central's LA's Eagle Wings of Enlightenment, began a long dance ceremony with a group of devotees after Sri had earlier divined that Giant Rock was suffering from spiritual neglect. In response, the earth would undergo a violent upheaval unless the group intervened. Their story details how mother would crack the boulder at its side if she appeared and answered their prayers. Alternatively, if the great boulder split through the middle, mother was displeased with humankind. So mother as in mother earth. She won't gonna be happy if it split down the middle. If it split to the side, she would then also answer their prayers. So after fasting, the group began the ceremony at Giant Rock and moved to the nearby Integratron property that afternoon. We will get into what the Integratron is here in a little bit. Here, from sunset to 3.30 a.m. the following morning, 8 to 10 participants danced around a fire until the last person fell from exhaustion. The rite concluded as a light rain began to fall. Not only did the boulder crack the next day, but an enormous one-eighth section also broke off. So Shri Doth, oh my gosh, I'm going to mess this one up. Shri Nath Devi and her acolytes interpreted this event as Mother Earth opening her arms to us, cracking open her heart for the world to see. Wow. That Okay, so all of this was a premonition from almost, well, 80 years before. So for them to be able to come out and do this dance and then it happened the next morning is incredible. So Native Americans have been coming to the site, what they say, for thousands of years. This site has been pulling people into its energy vortex for longer than we can comprehend. This is a very sacred 
spot. So another modern day story begins nearly 90 years ago when Frank Kritzer, Kritzer, where Frank, Frank, first stumbled upon this exceptional boulder. So Frank was born in 1886 in Waynesboro, Virginia. It is not known how Frank, a former member of the Merchant Marine, first learned about Giant Rock, but he arrived there in 1931. Frank proceeded to set up camp as a squatter and then filed a mining claim shortly after that. Frank began to blast out a 24 by 36 foot two room home underneath this immense boulder i can't what okay i've come up with some pretty great ideas of different unique homes but i've never wanted to dig a hole underneath the biggest boulder on the planet this is interesting the underground dwelling featured stone stairs leading to a ventilated living room kitchen area and bedroom a bank of windows positioned under the boulders overhang passively lit the chamber during the daytime and a water catchment system collected occasional desert rainfall off the rock's face as a result the interior of this underground home remained a temperature of 55 to 80 degrees fahrenheit year round perfect basement dwelling so most accounts describe frank as an odd guy yeah probably but very pleasant host at that he served up german pancakes while he and his visitors conversed propping up their legs on boxes of dynamite which their host used for his various prospecting and construction projects so frank likes to blow shit up and use it as a side table <laughs> Uh, interesting. Locally, Frank was known for his community service as well. He had graded 33 miles of road in the future landers area, becoming known as Straight Road Frank for his efforts. He also graded an emergency landing field on the dry lake east of the boulder. One of Frank's strangest boasts was how he was so full of electricity he could charge flashlight batteries by simply placing them under his pillow while he slept. This is the kind of energy that is happening near this boulder. So an illustrated article from May 9th, 1937 edition of the Los Angeles Times featured his unique home and the public airstrip. A few years later, though, however, a Times article dated July 26, 1942, presented Frank in a completely different light, probably because somebody didn't like what was going on, because a Riverside deputy sheriff had raided his subterranean home and was seeking information on recent thefts of dynamite, gasoline, and mining equipment in the area. Apparently, the sheriff's encounter with Frank had gone very sour. So somebody was trying to say that Frank was stealing shit and the cops went to check it out and he probably didn't really like their tood so much. So to add fuel to the fire, Frank had been under FBI investigation sometime during the late 1930s for suspicious activities because there's all this paranoia from World War II that he was assumed to be German 
okay, I get the German pancakes thing. So that's what they're leading up to. But it was a very fraudulent assumption. He was not German, but all these people assumed that he was a German spy. It hadn't helped that he had installed a shortwave radio antenna and receiver on a nearby rock formation, adding to the speculation that he was a Nazi spy. So Frank was later cleared of these charges, but law enforcement and some locals remained apprehensive about the weird desert dude, which did not set well with Frank. Several versions began to circulate regarding the actual chain of events that occurred on July 25th, 1942. The Times states that shortly after arriving, deputies Claude McCracken, (laughs) I like that name for this cause, Harold Simpson and Fred Pratt experienced severe injuries when 70 pounds of Frank's dynamite mysteriously exploded. Okay, They talk about this story all the time, that they have no idea exactly what happened, but here's what's going down. McCracken, being the first to enter the cave, was the most seriously injured of the three. The blast was so forceful that it shredded his clothing as he was violently thrown in and about the room. After sustaining up to a hundred bloody gashes, McCracken was hospitalized. The explosion occurred as the other two deputies descended the stairs, allowing them to escape with concussions and less severe injuries. So varying accounts suggest that either Frank or the deputies somehow accidentally or purposefully set off the dynamite during the confrontation. Mm, I don't know. I mean, I guess if if I was Frank, I'd want to go out in a blaze of glory. But all that work just to blow yourself up, I'm going to go with purposely set off. One thing is known, Frank at age 56 died immediately. Details are murky as to how or why the blast occurred since the explosion and the subsequent fire destroyed any evidence that could determine Frank's guilt or his innocence. And as it turned out, the missing dynamite was later discovered in Joshua Tree National Monument because Frank had not stolen it. What a bunch of dicks. So... Before Frank's questionable demise, though, George Van Tassel, an Ohio native who had moved to Southern California in 1930 at age 22 to work in the booming aviation industry, visited Frank regularly. So Van Tassel worked for Douglas Aircraft until 1941, then moved on to Howard Hughes' operation and finally ended his aviation career at Lockheed Skunk Works in Burbank. If you know anything about conspiracy theories, all these people connect to a lot of UFO stuff. So Van Tassel's claims to have worked as a flight safety inspector and even as Howard Hughes' test pilot, Van Tassel additionally claimed that he had first met Frank in 1930 at his Uncle Glenn's Payne Santa Monica auto repair shop. So... George met Frank at a repair shop at his uncle's spot because Frank had something wrong with his car. So according to Van Tassel's story, Frank found himself broke and in a desperate need of car repairs when he stumbled into Payne's shop. 
The three struck up an immediate friendship to the extent that Payne and Van Tassel repaired Frank's car for free and let him bunk in the garage overnight. Wow, that was so nice of them. By the next day, Payne and Van Tassel had given Frank $30 plus food so that he could build in the desert. Wow, how do you... (laughs) They hit this friendship off running. Frank had planned to repay them once he struck it rich. Okay, so remember, 30 bucks was like a lot of money in 1930s. It's probably around 430 to $500 in today's money. So for them just to be like, oh, here you go. Sure, we'll, we'll, we'll repair your car for free. We'll give you some money. Um, but so that's a really generous sum of cash to hand over to a stranger. The trio agreed that he would drop them a line notifying them of his general whereabouts. So Frank kept his word and Van Tassel maintained that he regularly visited Frank in the desert in his home beginning in 1931 and occasionally with his family in tow. So during these excursions, Frank shared his innovative inventions with Van Tassel. So including breakthrough formulas for plastic not currently in use at the time, but unfortunately, all was lost in the explosion. So it was said that Frank had all of these inspirations coming to him because of all of this meditative, energetic energy there. And he was stumbling onto some stuff and sharing all of this information with Van Tassel. So upon of his friend's death, Van Tassel went to the boulder and pretty much was drawn to the desert immediately. And he eventually applied for a Bureau of Land Management permit to reopen and operate the airport that Frank had originally built on this 2,600 acres of public land in 1945. And he named it Giant Rock Airport. So the Giant Rock Airport was certified by the Federal Aviation Administration for emergency use by commercial airliners. So in the early 1960s, it had a lot of traffic going on, about one flight per day, which I don't know, that sounds like a lot for the 1960s in the middle of the desert. Between Uh, November of 1961 and October of 1962, it served as the launch site for helium-filled balloons used by RF miles to measure the density of neurons in the Earth's atmosphere at altitudes between 8,000 and 115,000 feet. So this was also a site for all kinds of people's inspirations on new ideas and concepts. So follow me here. In addition to being an aviator and an entrepreneur, Van Tassel was also a firm believer in alien life. So in 1947, George and his wife, Eva, and their three daughters moved to Giant Rock where they began their new life running the airport and a cafe called Come On In. Eva's tasty hamburgers and spiced apple pies were popular with all of the locals. So during the 1950s, Van Tassel began hosting Friday night meditation sessions in Frank's former subterranean home, pretty much. During these channeling meetups, Van Tassel claimed to have received telepathic communications, which he referred to as thought transference, originating from a group of benevolent Venusians that are extraterrestrial. So Venusian is extraterrestrials from Venus. 
Yeah. I'm loving this already. So the first three of these psychic transmissions began on January 6th, 1952, when Lutbin, senior in command, first wave, planet patrol, realm of Scar, <laughs> initially contacted him. So this dude from Venus said his name was Lutbin. These psychic visitations became... So numerous that by the end of 1952, Van Tassel had enough to publish a collection titled Road a Flying Saucer. His volume included telepathic messages from bizarrely named aliens like Ashtar, Klaatu, Loctopar, Singba, and Talamam. I don't even know if I'm saying any of those right. But in 1956, his book, Into the World and Out Again, Van Tassel recounted his first physical encounter with these beings at Giant Rock. He was awakened by Salgonada. <laughs> Salgonda? I don't know. I'm so sorry, Salgonda alien. A member of the Council of the Seven Lights. Uh, this happened around 2 a.m. on August 24th, 1953, and taken he was taken into a spacecraft that had landed on Giant Rock's adjacent airstrip. So it was like he just built this little airport for all the aliens as well as all the airplanes. Van Tassel described the spaceship as about 36 feet in diameter and about 19 feet high, with an interior space that appeared somewhat smaller. Once Van Tassel teleported aboard, Salgonda and three other male humanoids showed him the craft's celestial navigation, instrumentation, and other features, including retractable seating, shared to Van Tassel via telepathy. So they're like talking to him inside his brain. So the entire incident was estimated to have lasted about 20 minutes. During a 1964 televised interview, Van Tassel described the extraterrestrials as youthful white people with a good, healthy tan and an average human height. He estimated their ages at 700 years old when he met them. This sounds amazing. <laughs> I want to meet some Venetians. So many of the telepathic conversations warned Van Tassel and his fellow humans about the dangers of testing atomic and thermonuclear bombs. For instance, on April 19th, 1952, Curl, 64th Projection, 2nd Wave, 4th Sector Patrol, Realms of Scar, so, so like military for the Venus people. He proclaimed that due to inaccurate calculations, many of your fellow beings will suffer prolonged illness from an experiment to be conducted next week. Uh, so this was in conjunction to the use of an atomic power for destruction and will rebound upon the users. Discontinue at once. This is what Mr. Alien said. Indeed, the U.S. government detonated eight free airdrop atomic weapons between April 1st and June 5th of 1952 at the Nevada Proving Ground as part of an Operation Tumbler Snapper. <laughs> That's a weird 
operation name, but it caused dramatically higher civilian radiation exposures, proving exactly what the Venus alien man had told him. So many people that hailed from Southern California, including Van Tassel, were having all kinds of alien encounters in the California desert. Consider George Adamski, author of the 1953 book Flying Saucers Have Landed. Adamski stated that his first encounter with a friendly Venusian called Orthon near Desert Center, California, on November 20th, 1952, occurred around the same time as Van Tassel's initial contact. The same people, people, same aliens from Venus were contacting multiple people at the same time in the same area. So Adamski described Orthon as a fashionably attired extraterrestrial sporting a belted jumpsuit with tanned Nordic features and shoulder length blonde hair who communicated telepathically. Pretty much the same exact description that Van Tassel was giving on his Venus people. So In 1949, several years before this particular encounter, Adamski began giving public lectures throughout Southern California about his numerous UFO sightings in the Polymer Gardens area of North San Diego County. As with Van Tassel's compassionate aliens, Orthon forewarned Adamski about the perils of atomic testing and with the explanation that radiation emanating from Earth would spread and contaminate the entire solar system. Ha, here we go. Okay, so these particular aliens from Venus were only visiting and trying to tell us not to fuck shit up because it was going to eventually affect them as well, coming out of Earth and spreading into the entire solar system. So... Maybe that's why all the aliens keep an eye on our nuclear weapons, because nuclear destruction is not maintained just here on Earth, but can destruct all kinds of shit within the solar system. Adamski also claimed that the Venusians subscribe to universal law, stressing a creator of all that conveniently reflected Judeo-Christian religious beliefs and doctrines. So the idea that Christianity and even Christ himself came from outer space seems to be the prevailing ethos communicated by these alien mentors in the 1950s to their contactees. So they were saying that there is a creator God and that Jesus Jesus is a spaceman, not just from Earth, and prevails over all kinds of planets. How interesting is this? I mean, think about it. How can God and Jesus, if they're all seeing, all knowing, all powerful, just kind of be ruling over Earth? I mean, it makes way more sense if they're in charge of all the planets and all the solar systems or are they are they do they only get so many you know like i don't want to call god middleman but jesus seems middleman you know maybe he's only he only has a few like this solar system is his i don't know maybe i'm getting (laughs) a little too theoretical but 
Van Tassel went so far as to say that Mary, mother of Christ, was herself an extraterrestrial who volunteered through assignment to birth Jesus on Earth, or Sean, as the space people were said to call our planet. So the Venus people called Earth Sean, S-H-A-N, Shan, Sean, (laughs) I don't know, (laughs) Venus called us Sean. It seems that Jesus Christ, too, was an alien selected for duty. Both were part of Van Tassel's endemic race of space people of God's pure creation. He goes on to mention that the three wise men present at Christ's birth were extraterrestrials who followed the spacecraft, better known as the Star of Bethlehem, until it hovered where Jesus was born. The previous statement is an example of one of Van Tassel's numerous, complicated, revised interpretations of both the New and Old Testament, in which he says angel is a misspelling and misinterpretation of alien or that a select group of individuals with the correct vibratory body aura will be snatched up to the heavens by godly extraterrestrials during the rapture. Well, that was a fucking mouthful. (laughs) So to sum that up, Mary is an alien who signed up to give birth to the alien Jesus on earth that were followed by, you know, the three wise men who were also terrestrials, extraterrestrials in spacecraft, um, following him to earth to make sure he got here. Okay. I guess kind of like Superman baby when he was in the little spaceship and he got here, you know, away from all the other things that were happening to save their own kind. Hmm. Well, in 1976 collection of writings, When Stars Look Down, he notes whether one believes in Christ or not is not the point. The point is that the conditions of Earth require outside intervention and the same conforms to the requirements of prophecy. Okay, I don't know what that means, but... Van Tassel and others in 1950 Christian ufologists, including Adamski and Orfeo Angelusi, ushered in the new age of Earth movement, mixing esoteric traditions, occultism, 1960s counterculture, environmentalism, <laughs> holistic spiritual stuff. Like they've just mixed in all this crazy cool shit into their own belief systems, which I think is cool. Why not? You know? Fucking go for it. Another notable mid-century contactee with Mojave Desert Connections was Truman Betherum, a day laborer who moonlighted as a fortune teller and spiritual advisor. Betherum detailed his own experience in his 1954 book, Aboard a Flying Saucer. Now, claiming how he had boarded a spacecraft that landed in the desert near a worksite where he and his construction crew were laying asphalt, the vessel captain turned out to be a petite, incredibly striking humanoid female named Aura Rains, visiting from the planet Clarion. Betherum explained how humans could not directly view this unknown planet because it remained behind the sun and seemingly you know, unfettered by the laws of planetary motion. During their 10 recorded meetings, he recorded them. Oh, cool. 
I want to find that. Uh, notably at public lunch encounters, Aura communicated to Bethram that Clarion was a utopian society free of war, no divorce, and no taxes. <laughs> I mean, if this is like the top three things that they have. <laughs> I like the no war and the no taxes, but I don't know if that's like the, the no war thing. Definitely. That's the first thing I'm going for. But in addition, she shared how Clarionites lived to be nearly a thousand years old and were good Christians at that. There's such a Christian undertone to all of this. This is awesome. Betharam claims he never saw or heard from her again, although he remained obsessed with the illusion of Aura throughout his life, leading to the failure of his second marriage, which is so fucking contradictory to the fact that she told him on her planet there is no divorce. <laughs> so, I mean, hopefully she's not married yet or she can't marry you. Oh my gosh, this is awesome. Well, Bethram relocated to Lander shortly after attending one of Van Tassel's annual giant rock interplanetary spacecraft conventions. The events attracted all kinds of UFO-obsessed people who spent two days in the desert camping in tents and travel trailers. So first, the core of the 1950s contactees, including Adamski, Angelusi, Bethram, and other guests, lectured to a festive and enthusiastic crowd from a wooden platform located at the southern side of the giant rock. Then, as they waited patiently for extraterrestrial visitors in the evening, attendees gathered around campfires, swapping personal sightings of UFOs, alien abductions, and other unexplained phenomena. Oh my gosh, I can't wait to tell you stuff later. Okay, so depending on the year and the source cited, the convention reportedly attracted 1,200 to 11,000 attendees during the mid to late 1950s. During the height of the UFO intrigue from all these people, Van Tassel announced his plans to run for president in 1960. <laughs> Using the convention as his campaign launch, confident that his alien friends would help him win. However, interest in the gatherings began to kind of wane off during the 1970s because UFO sightings had become such a commonplace thing in Van Tassel's conventions. So they were seeing so many UFOs, it just became normal. And so everybody was like, well, I've seen it already. We've been here all, you know, how many years and we just keep on seeing them. So nothing new here. <laughs> Over time, Van Tassel would boast that he appeared on 409 radio and television shows and had given 297 lectures. While listening and watching the few archived lectures of him that are available online, it's pretty easy to see why a lot of people wanted to follow him. Like his demeanor, his voice, he's very convincing. He's very reassuring uh, that the, he's he's got this information. He looks very Christian, a very professional, very sincere, and has this like authority type energy about him. 
But in 1953, Van Tessel began to conceive, plan, and construct the Integratron, located three miles south of Giant Rock in California. This 16-sided domed wooden structure is 38 feet high and 55 feet in diameter, joined together without any nails or metal fasteners to interfere with its conductive qualities. Painted brilliant white, the exterior from a distance kind of looks like a little flying saucer that landed in the middle of the desert. But a central one-ton concrete core holds the structure's wooden skeleton in place. So they used wooden dowels as the nails too. Like there is no metal in this entire structure. Copper, except for copper. Okay, sorry. Copper wire emanating from the core spirals outward to enfold the entire circumference of the structure. And it was designed to act as a huge capacitor to collect up to 50,000 volts of static electricity from the air to charge the human body. But unfortunately, it never became completely operational. Over the 25 years that Van Tassel worked on the Integratron, over $200,000 in worldwide donations from all the people that were supporting him funded its construction. So he long maintained that Saul Gonda provided him with the formula for the Integratron during their exchanges in their spaceships at the Giant Rock in August 1953. This device, whose main components were two large copper coils infused with high voltage, in turn borrowed heavily from Nikola Tesla's invention, the Tesla coil, Coincidentally, Tesla also shared publicly that he too had received extraterrestrial communications for his inventions. Okay, I'm starting to see a little pattern here. Maybe we should really take these aliens a little bit more seriously and use it for good. (laughs) I don't know. That's just something I'm seeing a pattern of. But like batteries, cells run down, bodies run down, and the energy lost is manifested as aging, says George Van Tassel. So the Integratron website describes the structure. It's a resonant energy machine sighted on a powerful geomagnetic vortex in the magical Mojave Desert. Indeed, The Integratron was designed as an electrostatic generator to rejuvenate human cells and tissue. But it was kind of designated like as a time machine, but not like in the time machine that we would normally say. It's literal to how Van Tassel envisioned it to allow those to physically enter into it and transcend the effects of time by defying the laws of gravity and reversing the aging process on the body. That was his plan for this. Fucking love this. Okay, this sounds like, what was that Tom Cruise movie where they had the oh the words on the tip of my tongue where they had that machine that you could get into and it would just rejuvenate the body back to a healthy state (sighs) i 
feel like that's what they were trying to teach us. Oblivion. Yes, the movie Oblivion. I'm gonna, I'm gonna have to go back and watch that one again. The structure was finished in 1959, but when Van Tassel mysteriously died of a heart attack, like weeks before they were supposed to start finishing it, it it's only 90% complete. So because of this, the Integratron was considered non-functional. Yet no one could locate plans or instructions to make it operational. Followers close to Van Tassel claimed that the blueprints were stolen and attributed to the theft as the conspiracy to cover up and prevent the machine from being used by the government. Because free energy machines... The government doesn't like those very much. They don't like anything that's free, anything that can take away profit and control of people being in a beautiful state of existence. I don't believe it. Can't be. (laughs) But after Van Tassel's death, his second wife, Doris, leased the building to several tenants, including one who wanted to turn it into a disco. And over the next few years, the structure began to kind of fall apart until a new age couple from the Bay Area interested in preserving the Integratron's unique history decided to purchase it in 1987 for $50,000. Ugh, I wish I could have purchased the Integratron for $50,000. The dome's latest owners are three sisters from the East Coast who bought the property in 2000. And over time, they have lovingly restored both the grounds and the building, which requires constant structural maintenance to its original form. This is so beautiful. So Giant Rock has been this amazing central vortex to so many different experiences, information, people, gatherings that I really wanted to talk about it more because I've had my own experiences at Giant Rock, at the Integratron, and Joshua Tree National Park. So here is my experience with Giant Rock. So Oh my gosh, let's see. Could it have been 2015, 2016? This was the location of the very first Contact in the Desert UFO conference. Yes, I went to the conference for UFO people in Joshua Tree, the same location that they've been having gatherings for UFO contactees for thousands of years. It was such an amazing experience. This was kind of like the first time I decided that I was going somewhere by myself. I went completely by myself. I stayed inside of the women's dorm. So there's all kinds of these other girls in there that you kind of got to meet and talk to and hear all these experiences from. This is where they started the UFO conference that held all the speakers for alien, um, ancient aliens. So, of course, there's Giorgio Suclos and there's George Nori and there are uh, Michael Tellinger and Laura Eisenhower and William Henry and all of these amazing speakers were there for the first time. 
this place is definitely magical. I'd never stayed in the desert before. It was very different vibes um, than being in Kansas, <laughs> where I lived before. And so, but it did. It had this spiritual feel to it all. I, it was the first time I'd ever gone somewhere and I didn't feel like a fucking weirdo, you know? Like, you could turn around and have any kind of strange, unusual conversation with just anybody standing in line for fucking lunch and nobody skipped a beat. Everybody was right on it. Like there's so much information floating around at this place. There were so many lectures. The They had this labyrinth that I walked in the desert that was beautiful. I mean, you could feel the energy moving through your feet when you were barefoot in the desert. And then, of course, um, what happened was they, I think it was this first or second night, um, Stephen Greer was there and he was in charge of this meditation that we did underneath the Perseid meteor shower, which was fucking amazing. Okay, there are hundreds of us. I don't know. There could have been, you know, a thousand. I don't know how many people. There was probably only... uh, a thousand or so people at the most at this gathering. So there's at least 500 of us or so laying underneath the stars, listening to his meditation guidance. And next to me is Giorgio Suclos and his cute little pregnant girlfriend at the time. And I didn't want to be a dick and like bother them. So I didn't. Um, But I just felt cool (laughs) that I can lay there next to them. But um this meditation was fucking amazing. And they had people with night vision goggles and this whole process, CE5 um, process of how to spot these UFOs in the sky. And you could literally see these little lights crossing the skies in all of these non-normal linear directions. It was fucking amazing. So the next day I took the tour to go out to Giant Rock and the Integratron. And we got out to Giant Rock right at sunset. So the photographer and me is snapping so many pictures this whole time. I was just having so much fun with capturing all these moments and learning all of these this valuable information that I I never found a place where I could find all the cool weird shit that I wanted to talk about and learn about. It was just mind blowing for me. So I'm shooting all of these amazing pictures of the Integratron and of the giant rock. It is a huge rock. It just towers over you. But I got these amazing sunset shots. And right at sunset, it, it was getting a little dark. So I did have to start using my flash for a few of the photographs. Well, after coming home from this conference, I I literally felt like a whole new person. I was not the same person coming home as I was before I went there. Even my family was like, you seem different. And I was. I was completely different. I didn't feel like I was all alone and just in my own head with all of my thoughts and experiences, I actually had a group of people that I could share this with, that I could learn from. Uh, Michael Tellinger's lecture was one of the most amazing lectures I've ever heard. David Wilcox had a, a really great performance, I would call as well. He's He's got some showmanship there. But 
it was just this gathering of all these people brought all this energy in and all of us combined, we made this this energy that opened something up. I just don't even know how else to, to say it. There were so many um, alien experiencers there that I could talk to that had just so many great stories and so much um, material evidence. People had tons of evidence. People are always like, oh, show me the evidence. Holy shit, there's tons of it. There's so much of it that if you are not a believer you're just choosing to not be a believer at this point I don't even know what else to say but the best part about all of this well I don't even know if it's the best part but one of the coolest things about all of this is that uh, after I came home and I'm going through all of my photos I like to put together um, a family book and at the time I was working on my magazine Oz uh to kind of do articles based on my travels to contact in the desert. So as I'm going through all of my photos, I get to one that I really like that I'm going to use for the large photo article that I'm going to write about Giant Rock. And so I'm pulling it up and I'm zooming in on it just to kind of check out all the details because there is a lot of graffiti now that is on Giant Rock. Um, you know, people get out there and they do crazy shit. One lady went out there at one point in time and painted the whole middle of the rock where it had cracked red to simulate that it was the blood of the earth and that we were destroying it. And it was like this big focal art piece that shouldn't be painting on the giant rock is, I don't know, that's just my view on it. There's lots of people that came out and did graffiti, but after time, Mother Earth is going to be able to wash all that away. That's that's temporary. But as I'm zooming in and I'm looking at all of the details of Giant Rock, I come across something that is so fucking amazing about, I don't know how far from the rock in the sky, you can literally see some kind of a... I don't know how else to say it, a UFO that I captured in my photo. Now, when I say UFO, you know, obviously the description of that is an unidentified flying object. This does not look like your typical craft where it's triangular or it's cigar shaped or it looks like a, a saucer, like metal, shiny or anything like that which there is a lot of evidence to those kinds of crafts. Uh, there's all kinds of flying saucers out there, flying saucers, flying craft. There's way, there's so much out there that it's kind of like looking at all of the different vehicles that we have. Not all of our vehicles look the same. They're so different. They have different purposes. Same thing with all these craft. But the one that I captured, it looked like it had these spiral energy light beams going all the way through it. And I I was just dumbfounded by what I had found. I did not see that with my own naked eyes when we were out at Giant Rock. I only found it later when I was going through all of my photos. I went through the progression of all the shots that I had to see if I had captured anything else. And that was the only one that I noticed that this UFO was in. I was so excited that I didn't want to like put it on blast or anything. I wanted to be all 
<laughs> incognito with it. So I did publish it in my article in my Oz magazine, and I didn't even come outright and state that I had captured a UFO. I just insinuated for those to check out the image below, and I blew up the tiny little section of the actual UFO so that you could see it a little bit closer, so that you could see those spiral rings that this thing was emitting. Um, so exciting because one of the things that I projected out to the universe when I showed up at Contact in the Desert was I would love to be able to capture something on and through my photography. This is my passion and I would be forever grateful if I could be able to see something this amazing and they were able to fulfill that for me. To this day, I have this image uh, as my screensaver on my phone. I mean, I showed this astrologist. Oh my gosh, what is his name? He used to, he was at Contact in the Desert. He was also at the Eureka Springs um, Mountain UFO uh, conference that I went to. And I showed him the picture and he, because he likes to try to debunk if, you know, some of these things are just refractions of light or if there are anything else. And he was a, still a little bit um, cautious about saying that it wasn't real because he said the way that it was positioned, it could not be a reflection of the light that would have been bouncing from below. It had an opposite and upside down light something about it. I don't know. I was supposed to forward it over to him so he could look at it closer. And I totally forgot. I'm so sorry. <laughs> he used to have a show on KR KGRA also where he was the astrologist that would talk about all kinds of cosmic stuff out in this in the space. Maybe I should reach out to him again. Be like, hey, remember me? <laughs> he probably doesn't. <laughs> but I had such a beautiful and amazing experience out at Giant Rock that I decided to go again. I went the following year to contact in the desert and this time around the word must have got out because it tripled if not quadrupled the amount of people that came out to this conference. It had grown exponentially that we were maxed out at this Joshua Tree um, resort area that we were staying in. It was unbelievable the amount of people that were becoming a part of this whole scene all over again. Um, again, saw a lot of those speakers. I love to kind of revisit what they have going on. Even David Wilcox. So the first time he was very energetic, a little cocky, very sure of himself and his ways, very excited to be the most thought after speaker there, I think is what I got from his whole persona. Very interesting stuff, though, that he had to talk about. I do enjoy listening um, to his ideas and to the people that he connects with. But this time around, he had a whole different demeanor. He was very reserved and cautious and scared and had like security because he was afraid for his life or some kind of information. And it was just he had a whole new vibe going on that time. I was like, huh, I wonder... I don't know what's going on there, but I just met some of the most beautiful people at this conference, and I was a little disappointed when they moved it 
from this Joshua Tree resort in the desert to more of a much larger resort area that just it lost all of its luster and the magic from it. Uh, it just got so big that they couldn't keep all these people out there um, and with all the anemones that were required for it. So after COVID, of course, I have not seen another contact in the desert happen in person. And honestly, I feel like all of those speakers jumped ship and started going with Alien Con that is now the big giant monstrosity mainstream UFO conference that's going on that I think was birthed from Contact in the Desert. But that doesn't mean that I don't want to go to it. I really think I want to go to it. I haven't been um, for some years now. And I'm ready. I want to go to another UFO conference. So I'm going to check out Alien Con's locations this year. I know that in 2023, they're doing it in March and I think Pasadena. I'll have to look that up. But they traveled around to different cities last time they did this. So I'm really hoping that they'll come back to Texas for something. But I'm willing. I'm willing to travel. I'm going to go see them. I'm going to see what kind of new information that they have. Like Linda Moulton Howell, I saw her last time, and she is great. She has so much um, researched intel that blow your mind. I don't even know. But, yeah, I think that those are all the things that I can say about Giant Rock for now. I'm so glad that you guys are here to listen to my crazy stories. I am always trying to come up with fun, new, intriguing things that I can share with you guys. And I can't wait to tell you more on the next Access Elysium podcast. <laughs>